Well, I'll have to admit to you that there is a certain intimidation factor when you're teaching a lesson that everybody knows so well. Uh, I, Moses is one of the most familiar characters in the Bible, and for good reason, and he certainly was significant. There is a place, especially in um, Numbers, that God designates Moses as a uniquely qualified, specific person that he has chosen to speak through, that he treats him unlike any other prophet, that he meets with him face to face. So there's good reason that we would pay attention to Moses. So what I hope to try to do in looking at the first two chapters of Exodus is not to tell you anything new, but maybe to remind you of some things that you have heard and forgotten, things that are encouraging to us as we think about our service to God wherever we may be when He calls us to service. Exodus opens as if it is just a continuation of Genesis, and in some ways it is. It deals with the same people we were talking about at the end of Genesis. What it doesn't tell you is that there's a gap of 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Seems to me that would be something important to know. I wish somebody had, had uh, given a hint that you have a gap of 400 years so that when you come from the end of Genesis, there are 70 members of the Jacob family, including Joseph and his family in Egypt. 70 people. When you get to the beginning of Exodus, you don't have a number, but there are so many Israelites that they intimidate Pharaoh. I mean, he sees them as a, a, a possible source of rebellion, overthrow, threat to his thrones. We'll look at that in just a minute. A little bit later, when they number the fighting men in the tribes who were 20 years and older, there are over 600,000 of them which gives you a population of the Israelites of a million and a half to two million people involved in the Exodus and going through the wilderness. And a lot of commentators are so intimidated by those numbers, they say, well, numbers are the hardest things to translate, and there may be a transposition of an extra digit in there or something. It's just an awful lot of people. So watch how this develops. And uh, Moses isn't even in the first chapter. But I have come to read Exodus as a book of heroes. And there are two pairs of heroes before you ever get to Moses that are uh, both mentioned here in the first two chapters. So uh, you have the listing of the 70 who were descendants of Jacob in the first two verses, or first five verses, then verse 6. Joseph and all his brothers, all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. 400 years with each family having, just for round numbers, 10 children. So every 20 years or so, you're having 10 more and 10 more and everybody's having 10 more and so they are numerous, and they fill the land. Does that phrase remind anybody of anything? The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that they filled 
the land. Yeah, where did God tell them that? Adam and Eve, yeah, in the Garden of Eden. That's what God says to human beings. Be fruitful, multiply, and spread out over the earth. Well, that's exactly what has happened to the Israelites. So, with God's blessing, they have been extremely fortunate in the number of children they have, the survival of their children, so that over 400 years they have become numerous and filled the land. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph. Somebody needed to fire those history teachers. I can't believe that they didn't know about Joseph. Uh, did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. That word shrewdly means underhanded, behind the back, hidden. We need to outsmart them, is what he's saying. And so as you read through what happens, you wonder, who's really the shrewd one here? It's not Pharaoh. We need to deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies to fight against us and leave the country. All this is speculation. There's never been a hint of rebellion among the Israelites. They have been shepherds to the Pharaohs. But over the course of time, things change. Things are remembered differently. And so now, as foreigners, they look like a threat to the Pharaoh. So that's, that's his concern. They were just too many. So... Here's step one. There's a three-step process that Pharaoh uses to try to not only control the Israelites, but to reduce their numbers. Remember, that's his concern, how many there are. The problem is you've got to solve the numbers. First, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramesses, the store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the, the procedure that Pharaoh was using had the opposite effect. Harder work, more numerous and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard work and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields and their hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly twice in that paragraph, the word ruthlessly. Hard labor. The emphasis on how they were mistreated as people. They were uh, treated uh, as poorly as slaves could be treated, but that's essentially what they were reduced to was slavery. But the only result of that was they grew more numerous and spread even more than they were before. So, step two. He's going to make murder a part of his plan. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery school, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives, asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. A couple of questions. First, who are these women? 
They are described as Hebrew midwives. But you have to understand that at this early stage, the term Hebrew doesn't mean just descendants of Abraham. It means foreigners, wanderers, landless people, Bedouins. Uh, one archaeologist you know, wrote uh, an essay several years ago suggesting that the original meaning of the word was dust covered because they were people who traveled in the desert and so they would logically be covered with the dust that, that, their, that their travels stirred up. So who were they? Were they Jewish midwives? Were they foreign midwives who worked with the Jews in delivering their babies? There's quite a bit of debate about that in the, in the literature, and it's not possible to answer it exactly except for this, for this phrase. Did you notice when it's talking about their defiance of Pharaoh? It says they feared God, did not do what the king had told them. If they weren't Jews themselves, where did they develop the fear of God so much so that they refused to do the direct instructions of Pharaoh? Pharaoh was a god in Egypt. He had the power of life and death over anybody. So to not do what Pharaoh has given a direct order to do is to put yourself in danger of death. They feared God more than Pharaoh. They could be, I suppose, people like Melchizedek, who was priest of God Most High, but wasn't descended from Abraham. It could be like Ruel, Jethro, who will become Moses' father-in-law, not descended from Abraham, who served God. Does God have more people that he knows who are on the earth to do his will than just the ones we know about, than just the ones who are identified? They feared God is the bottom line, and that's what we know about them. That's really all we know. They feared God. And because of that, they let these Hebrew boy babies live. Pharaoh's plan was, if you killed the baby as the birth was taking place, then you could say, well, it was a stillbirth, something wrong with the baby, it wasn't alive, cover it up. Still would be murder, but you, you could have some alternate story about it. So what do you think about their response to Pharaoh? Why did you let them live? Their answer is, Hebrew women are more vigorous. They have the baby so fast that by the time word comes to us and then we get our stuff together and then we go there, the baby's already come. So you can't cover it up anymore. There's a live baby there. So you can't do anything. What do you think about that? Clever. <laughs> it is clever. Who's the shrewd one here? Well, the midwives outfoxed Pharaoh. Is that a lie? Is that an untruth? It might be true. I mean, 
if you put this together with the earlier comments that they were numerous and, and multiplied rapidly, then that could be some intervention of God that, that, that it was true. Right, not for this many people. And so that's another point where the commentators discuss. Well, are there only two or are these sort of the head midwives, the ones who are in communication with Pharaoh? Pharaoh couldn't talk to everybody, uh, as, as you uh, remember from the later story, uh, access to Pharaoh is fairly restricted. Uh, one of the things we want to look at next week is when uh, God says to Moses, I will make you as God to Pharaoh. And he's talking about communication. So we'll, we'll look at that. But uh, I'm assuming that they are just the two who are, are sort of in charge of the midwives. Because two couldn't do the job for a nation of a million people. We don't have that information exactly, so you just have to make the best guess you can. Yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, certain that this is an out-and-out -out lie. It's interesting that the, that the writer, Moses, the Holy Spirit, doesn't comment about it. And um, one, one way that this is dealt with sometimes is to say, these are extraordinary circumstances, so they don't provide you any guidance for ordinary circumstances. To, you know, there's no such thing as a white lie. Well, you know, according to us baby boomers, we might use the phrase, just let it be. <laughs> just let it be, that's right. Just let it go. Well, it appears that Pharaoh didn't really question their truthfulness. Right, yeah. right. He, he didn't have a rejoinder. And they apparently didn't get in trouble. And in fact, the conclusion is God was kind to the midwives. So apparently God didn't take exception to what they said either. The people increased, became even more numerous. See, this is the second time that that phrase has been used. First, we're going to work them to death. They became more numerous. Second, we're going to kill the boy babies. They became more numerous. You get the idea that there's something working behind the scenes here other than just human scheming and human efforts. Because the midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. And Pharaoh, now, here's step three. The gloves are off. There's no more playing around about it. We're going to curtail the Jews. So Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw in the Nile but let every girl live. So chapter one introduces, in my reading, the first two heroes. They are people who put their lives on the line, who defied Pharaoh, and who did the work of bringing the, the boys alive into the world. So the chapter ends with kind of a pause, Pharaoh's declaration, Throw the boy babies in the Nile. Which leads us to the second pair of heroes. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. Some of you know their names. 
You don't get their names until you continue to read and you get over to about chapter 6 and there's a genealogy. And the names of both of them appear in the genealogy in chapter 6. Amram and Jochebed were both Levites. So that means Moses was a Levite. That means Miriam was a Levite. And that means who else? Aaron, Moses' oldest brother, who becomes the first high priest. So the, the tribe of priests is the Levites. Um, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, that word is the same word that is used back in Genesis to describe Joseph. When Joseph arrived at Potiphar's house as Potiphar's slave, he was described as, uh, I don't think the translation there is fine, handsome and well-formed, uh, I think is what it says, but it's, it's the same idea. She saw that he was a fine child. She hid him for three months. What happened at the end of three months? Why could she no longer hide him in her home? What happens to a baby's lungs after a while? The cry suddenly shifts gears. <laughs> They're pretty loud when they get here. Their lungs just expand. So once the baby was making too much noise, about three months, she could hide him no longer. She got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, and placed the child. Now, watch this. Placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. It just is one of my pet peeves. And every time we come across this, I have to complain. But every video I've ever seen, Every story about the birth of Moses has the basket floating off down the Nile. In fact, something that's as good and responsible as the Bible Project video on Exodus has the basket going down the Nile. How could Miriam watch the basket if it's on the move? The text says right here, his mother placed it among the reeds. You got these water plants that are growing Near, near the bank. And so the basket is in there. It's stuck. It's not going anywhere. It's hidden. The, the reeds serve to hide the basket. So that's what it is. Miriam is there. Uh, she's not named here. As a matter of fact, Miriam's name doesn't occur until chapter 15 after they've crossed the sea and watched the Egyptian chariots drown when God allowed the waters to close. Then Moses has the song of Moses and then Miriam leads the women in singing. That's the first time her name occurs. Uh, stood at a distance to see what would happen here. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. So it was in the same place as it started out. So she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Besides Amram and Jochebed having the courage to uh, hide their baby boy, 
Pharaoh's daughter is something of a hero, although she doesn't do it for religious reasons or for godly reasons. But she recognizes right away, this is a foreign baby. This is one of those babies that the Pharaoh says, kill, throw in the Nile. And what does she do? She saves him, draws him right out of the water. And Miriam runs up and says, uh, well, you know, obviously you haven't been pregnant. You can't nurse this baby, but I know somebody who can. And she says, great, go, go get her. That'll work. So Miriam gets Moses' own mother. And on top of it, she gets paid. Pharaoh's daughter says, I'll, I'll pay her for caring for this baby. So sometime later, we don't know how long, uh, Moses went to live in uh, the palace. Um, you could, the baby probably would be about three years old or so when it was uh, completely weaned. And he may have stayed at the home for another year or two or three till he was able to more or less take care of himself. So that raises this question. Another complaint I have against the movies about Moses. Moses as an adult, have you seen these movies? Moses as an adult is confused about who he is. Egyptian, Israelite, what's my role, who am I? What? It could just totally confused. You don't get that from Exodus. Here's, here's, here's the way it is described. Um, when the child grew older, this is verse 10, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at hard labor. How did he know they were his own people? Well, what does a child learn in the first five or six years of life? They learn a sense of identity. And in Jewish culture, where reciting scripture, uh, Sabbath meals, talking about God daily, you have a, a really deep indoctrination. Moses had no doubt about who he was. Now, Moses as a prince of Egypt, that, there's no doubt that that's true. But how well did he know Pharaoh or how well did Pharaoh know him? In the movies, they have regular interaction. There's always another brother who's the natural son of Pharaoh, and so they have conflict back and forth. None of that is here. How often did Moses see Pharaoh? Think about ancient times. What was one of the ways a monarch had to show his status? Besides money, army, think domestically. Uh, harem, yeah. Con wives and concubines in addition to that. Pharaoh probably had hundreds of female consorts. They wouldn't all fit in one palace. In fact, it'd probably be a mistake to try. But up and down the Nile, Pharaoh had palaces all over the place, from the Delta all the way to the Cataract Falls. So it's likely, we don't know this for sure, 
But it's likely that Moses didn't grow up in the main palace or even necessarily one of the main palaces. It, he may have seen Pharaoh once a year, maybe not that often. <laughs> Surely so. It's, in, it's interesting to read Acts chapter 7 in parallel with the early life of Moses because Stephen, in his sermon to the synagogue of the freedmen, gives some details that Exodus doesn't. And if you wonder where uh, some of these details, all the characters and, and figures and people in the Old Testament stories who don't have names, have names in the Talmud, the rabbinical traditions, which was oral in the time of Jesus. And it may be that Stephen was drawing on uh, some of that. Uh, verse 20 of Acts 7, At the time Moses was born, he was an ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Now, here's, here's what I want, want you to hear. Prince of Egypt, not necessarily in Pharaoh's uh, sight every day, but here's what we know. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. What does that mean? If he'd been raised as a Hebrew, what would his education have been? Well, he would have learned to trade. Uh, yes, uh, occupational training was absolutely important for a Jewish boy. So he would have learned to trade. What about his literate training? Scripture, except Scripture didn't exist yet. We know that in the time of Jesus, for example, a Jewish boy would, at about the age of five or six, go to synagogue school, and he would learn from the rabbi, he would learn to read Hebrew, he would learn to write maybe his name, it's hard to say if it was more than that. If there was any uh, addition, subtraction, if there was any geography, if there was any history, it came out of Scripture. But before Moses wrote the first five books, there may have been some written documents, but it's hard to imagine what they contained or even how they originated. So if... if Moses had been raised as a Hebrew child. Chances are he would have been illiterate. He wouldn't have known a lot about the world. He would have known a trade. That's about all. But he was raised as a prince of Egypt. Uh, what, he says, what he says in his excuses to God is, I am slow of speech, which is not the same thing as stuttering. He's always portrayed as stuttering. He's just slow of speech. Have you ever heard a speaker, had to listen to a speaker who had a three-second pause between each word? <laughs> I mean, that, that would be slow speaking. It would be really hard to listen to. This says, however, that Moses was powerful in speech and action. So 
at the best you can say in Moses' series of excuses was it was just an excuse. And as my dad used to say, one excuse is as good as another. So he was, he was able to speak and he was educated and he was trained. And when he was 40 years old, Stephen says, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. And that's what we come to here in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2. 40 years old, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So two times in two verses, his own people. No doubt about Moses' understanding of who he is and what his connection is to them. Uh, glancing this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian, hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. Asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. What was Moses thinking when he went out to visit his own people? What was he thinking when he killed the Egyptian and buried him? And what was he thinking when he corrected the Hebrew? Listen to what Stephen says. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. At the age of 40, Moses is ready. Give me the task. Let's go. Let's get out of here. I'm the one. I'm ready. God says, no, you're not. Does it tell us anything? Well, he certainly knew who he was. He certainly knew who he was. future plan of action. What about God's timing? Exactly. I mean, watch what's happening. Moses is perfectly situated to be a leader, trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. But he doesn't yet know how to lead. He may know how to direct. He may know how to give authoritative orders. Probably learned that from being in the royalty in Egypt. But he doesn't know how to lead. How is he going to learn that? He's going to become a shepherd. Going to a shepherd. God's time. And watch, watch how this works. I'll bet most of you in this room, in a, in a quiet moment, could stop and think about times in your life where you couldn't see it at the time, but looking back on it, you can see God at work. And the thing that amazes me is not only is he at work in our small lives, bringing things about when it's the right time, but he even uses us with all the things we know we've done that are unworthy. When you think about the, think about the scope of the Old Testament, 
all the things these people did that messed up just all the time. And yet God used those people to bring about his will on the earth. There's a real encouragement, I think, uh, in that. When uh, Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled, went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian doesn't say he's a priest of what or who. doesn't say he's a priest of Baal, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, and, and in fact, he seems to have some direct connections with who the Hebrews would call Yahweh. Seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flocks. So, acting as an Egyptian prince, just in the authority of maybe, maybe he had uh, some physical strength, certainly had an authoritative voice, and he drove these shepherds away and watered the flocks for the women. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? asked the daughters. And why did you leave him? Invite him to come have something to eat. Uh, hospitality being one of the primary cultural customs of that part of the world. Uh, Abraham's killing an animal and feeding the three visitors who came to his tent was just cultural. And here, uh, it would be automatic that Ruel would want to feed and, and care for Moses. Um, where is he? Give him something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, give his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Moses had another son by Zipporah. Do you know him? I've got it uh, on the second page. Um, have to read over to chapter 18 of Exodus to find his name. Uh, Exodus 18, 3 and 4 says Moses' two sons were Gershom and Eliezer. Well, we don't know much about Eliezer. I don't know if, I don't know if he's mentioned uh, again in Scripture or not. And we don't hear much about Gershom either. During that long period, how long? Forty years he was a shepherd in Midian. The king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. How does God express his concern? Next week we'll look at the rest of the story, but I want to look uh, here in our closing minutes at the faith chapter in Hebrews and uh, look at what the Hebrews writer focuses on about Moses in, in his expression of faith. Uh, if, if you will notice as we read 
uh, this, this uh, starts in verse 23 with Moses' parents. But as you read what the writer of Hebrews says about Moses, I want you to notice uh, his emphasis on Moses' choosing, that Moses made a choice. Verse 23, by faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. You have to read that in context. Moses was, Genesis 2 says Moses was afraid. Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, I'm going to kill him when he found out about his, his uh, killing of the Egyptian. But the writer here says he did not fear by faith. So fear, faith. What does faith mean? Faith means we have some place to go with our fear. Think about the way Paul will talk in Philippians chapter 4. I have learned in all things to be content through Jesus. But if you go back to the middle of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says he was awaiting for news from Timothy and Silas. He had sent them north into Macedonia to check on the churches there because he hadn't heard from them. And the last he saw, there was violence being threatened. And so he says he was so worried he couldn't sleep. He was distracted from everything by his anxiety, his worry. Paul, learning to take all circumstances, anxious. What does it tell us? We're people of faith. But we live in a world where things are unpredictable, where there are evil people, where things don't always go the way we would choose them to go. What does that say about our faith? Is our faith lacking? Is our faith absent? What's the disconnect? What's the problem? Well, the reality is we're human. We live in a human world. Our perspective is the perspective of this world. But we practice and we learn and we spend time focusing not on what is here and now, but what the reality of the future is. As Paul says in, as at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's Moses. 
He refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a time. The Bible is honest that sin is pleasurable. It wouldn't be tempting if it weren't pleasurable. But the problem is that every pleasure that comes from Satan has a hook at the end. You pay a great price for the pleasures of sin. First of all, they don't last all that long. And second, they have consequences. By faith, Moses chose to be identified with the people of God. He chose to reject the prestige and the power of Egypt for spending the rest of his life as a wanderer. There are times, as you read through the Pentateuch, there are times when Moses is so exasperated with the people he's leading, he says, God, just take my life. It's just not worth it. Just, just end it all. And yet, because of his faith, he persevered. He's a great hero. And, and that's the word the Hebrew writer uses. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Well, next week, we'll look at chapters 3 and 4 and see if there's anything there that you are helped to be reminded of.